It's Tuesday at 8pm and you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight's programme is the final one before we take a break for the summer and it's quite a special show because we're off to Taste of Dublin where the tables were turned on me and instead of asking the questions I was answering them and also at Taste of Dublin this year was a number of fantastic award-winning food and drink producers including Anna and Orla Snook O'Carroll who founded Valencia Island Vermouth last year and I'll be doing a call with the wife and wife team later on in the programme to find out more. But before all that, may I take this opportunity to remind you about how you can make contact with me here at The Best Possible Taste. You can drop me an email, Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation and I'm also on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. So a few weeks ago, I was a guest at Taste of Dublin along with Michelin star chef J.P. McMahon. The host was food writer Dee Laffin and the theme was food nostalgia. Let's have a listen. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Welcome to Taste of Dublin 2022. It's so nice to be here in the Ivy Gardens in this beautiful sunshine. Glorious weather for Taste this year. You couldn't ask for it any better. We were here in September for Taste, but it was like a mini Taste. It wasn't the full experience. I feel like looking around now today, you can really appreciate the full glory of Taste of Dublin with all the food vendors, restaurants, producers, everything. Lots going on. I'm joined now uh, here, we're going to talk about uh, food nostalgia and I'm joined by two people that are going to take us down memory lane for them. JP McMahon, the chef and owner of a near restaurant, Tartar, Cava Bodega, the mayor of Galway. I mean, like you own so much in Galway now. Do- Lots Dr. Of JP McMahon. Doctor, excuse me, I'm so oh, sorry. Oh yeah, doctor. Yeah, you've uh, earned that. Congratulations. That, that was the hardest thing to get of yeah. the restaurants, yeah. <laughs> Dr. JP McMahon. Um, JP is a, a well-renowned re- chef here in Ireland, um, champion of Irish produce, and um, I can imagine for you, um, it's going to be a really interesting story about your background to see how it led to restaurants. Sharon Noonan, who is a broadcaster and a food broadcaster, and um, works with uh, West Limerick uh, Food Network. Is that right? That's what I'm yes, calling it, um, right? And um, Sharon, again, well-known person in the food industry in Ireland, the food community here that we all are part of. And uh, working with, we, we met down in Bloss, Naharan, down in Dingle at the National Food Awards. And Sharon, um, I'm going to start with you. Where are you originally from? Well, I'm from Northern Ireland. Yes. Um, I live down in West Limerick now. That's where my husband's from. As I always say, he wouldn't leave his mommy, so I had to leave mine. <laughs> so I've been down there 16 years, but life started up in Ballymena in County Antrim, and my father would have been a fourth generation greengrocer. Oh, amazing. So from a very early age, we would have been surrounded by 
fruit and veg, not the best fruit and veg because that was always kept for the customers in the shop. <laughs> I remember the oranges in particular with the black skins and dad saying, there's nothing wrong with them. And I was saying, well then why can't you sell them? Why do, why do we have to eat them? Oh, is there many in your family? So there's three of us. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And yeah. uh, my father, my parents didn't want either of us to go into the family business. We were always steered towards university, towards yeah. third level education. Nobody else in the family would have done that. So. I ended up doing a, a degree in French and business up at Queen's and took a very circuitous route, I think is the yeah. word, into the, into the world of food. But I definitely, growing up, I have so many fantastic memories of that whole environment, the, yeah. re, the retail. For Did you have to work in the oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely had to work in it. And even on holidays, no matter where we went in the world, we always had to go and visit fruit shops. I love that. Or fruit markets. Yeah. And even now, whenever I go into a fruit shop, that whole smell, just yeah. takes me back it's a very time. distinct can we yeah. all just like when you say that the smell of walking into a greengrocers that brings me back to my hometown one for sure it's a very particular smell isn't it yeah, absolutely and mum and dad would have been very innovative as well they would yeah. have been like the first shop in northern ireland if not the whole of ireland to go self-service okay and of course my father would have had uncles in the trade that went out joined the country in the van and they didn't have shops and they said you can't go self-service they'll be poking and prodding at it they'll bruise it all you'll have no margin at all no percentage at the end of the week but they they did it and it was obviously very successful and um it was it, it was a great way to to yeah. live and was the concentration obviously with fruit it wasn't just irish fruit you had fruit from all over imported and everything as well did you work did your father also work with farmers and for the irish produce with farmers around the local area he got everything he went up to belfast every morning up at five o'clock in the morning up literally at the crack of dawn and my dad actually died just a couple of months ago and Sorry. the Thursday before he died I was sitting in the room with him, it's five o'clock in the morning and he had asked me to open the blinds and I said look it's still dark outside dad and um, he said no open the blinds up there and he said all those mornings I got up and I never took time to kind of listen to the birds or watch the dog. I was always in such a rush to get up to Belfast to the fruit market. And I'd said to him, God, you know, when we were children, if you needed a few bob during the summer, you'd say to Dad, I'll go up to the market with you, Dad. And sure, all the other men up there would have given you a fiver. You could have oh, come, yeah. come back with a hundred quid in your pocket. <laughs> and any time, the rare occasions that I'd be up that early in the morning to, to go on a flight, for example, it always brings me back in time to those summers and going out. And I was telling Dad this was like was a lovely, a lovely memory to share. Yeah. But to come back to your question, yeah, he would have had a whole network of um, suppliers up in Belfast. So the wholesalers, the importers would have been there. Yeah. But also then you would have the growers from Round Armagh and Tyrone and places like that that came up. There was like there was great kinship there amongst them and. Um, but it all it all kind of fizzled out in the past ten years. Yeah. So things changed a lot. So um, the crack just wasn't the same for him going up there. And even whenever he kind of went into retirement, he still went up a couple of days a week. But he, he just didn't enjoy it as much. Yeah. So did he? Did you end up 
of the business doesn't exist anymore. Well, actually, his cousin has worked with him from he was yeah. 17, and John has the family business now. He has one shop, it's out in Brasheen, the, one of the prettiest villages in Northern Ireland, and it's a, a thriving business. Yeah. And, you know, he works behind the counter, he orders all the stuff, he knows all the customers by their first yeah. name. It's a really personable shop to go into, and again, whenever we're up in the north, and, and we go out, we take the children out to yeah. the granddad shop and the whole smell and everything. It just it just takes me back 20 years. What do you think about the future or the current position and future of green grocers in Ireland, the role that they've played in communities and then the future now for them? Like, Do you think it's going to something that's going to stick around? I've seen, just to go back to my hometown, I grew up with one, it closed, supermarkets come in, now there's two back. So yeah. do you think that that's a... And you uh, see, Newcastle West, where I live, it's yeah. been a bit like that. And there's been a fruit shop open, and I'd be saying to my husband, we have to support the fruit shop now. You yeah. must go and buy everything out of the fruit shop, and then it would close. And in, a, in actual fact, there is one that's just opening up today, yeah. a new one opening up today. And the wife of the guy that owns it works in one of the boutiques in town. And I was in there during the week, and I'd said to her, like, congratulations on the shop and all the best with it. And um, I said, you know what, that's... I grew up, yeah. my, my father was a greengrocer because I suppose a lot of people in West Limerick wouldn't know where, what my background is. I'm just yeah. married to your man, you know, that's in the <laughs> bank. I'm the, the cheeky one from the north. Yeah. So um, she said, God, really? And I said, yeah, I think it's brilliant that you're, you're, you're doing this. And I'd said again to Michael, whenever I'm back home, make sure now I go and support that fruit yeah. shop and get all the stuff out of it. And even now at the end of the year, um, for teachers, for example, there was no chocolates or wine or anything like that from us. It was always maybe a box of wee oranges or a oh, fruit yeah. basket that went up to the school at the nice. end of the year. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, JP, to go to you, um, where did you grow up and what was that like for you and with food in terms um, of... <clears throat> Let me see. Uh, I was born in Clendalkin. My, my two parents are from... Uh, well, my mum is from Bray and my father's from uh, Salorgan and uh, we moved... I suppose I spent most of my youth in Maynooth. I, I think from about four to 17 or 18. And... Um, yeah, we weren't a very, my father's a scientist, so we, we weren't very, like, a food-orientated family. Um, like, my father would, like, eat as quickly as possible, and then to eat food was always something, you ha like, you had to do because you had to keep your body going, but it wasn't sure. something you spent any time on. Yeah. Um, and so I do have memories of just my mother giving out to him, saying, would you slow down? Like, what, where are you going? Where are you going? And he was always just saying, I need to eat and can go. Um, but for us, yeah, I mean, certainly we would have had like the but the butchers, uh, and you would have had an account in the butchers and um, Jim O'Neill, and um, there would have. I actually just remembered now when you were talking about the grocery, I'd forgotten about the grocery shop and the smell of the grocery shop um, that was in um, that was in Minute. So just just pre um, Super Quinn and that yeah. when everything was still um, I suppose separated, and 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 you could say as you were saying that now it's. Uh, it's, it's kind of has gone full circle and it's yeah. coming back where you put butchers reopening um, but for us um, it was we're very very basic we were not a foodie family and like, I don't know how I got to where I got to like I certainly didn't uh, didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth it was like Findus crispy pancakes and uh, bird's eye waffles yeah. and fish fingers and uh, burgers but there was six of us and okay. my mum would have to cook for the six of us and now there was always like lamb stew there was always like lamb stew yeah. and barley and there was always like really really bony whiting on Fridays that I absolutely hated 
that was flowered and honestly I thought it was going to kill me. I was so <laughs> afraid of the fish, but actually the fish choked me to death. The classic Irish fish experience. Oh my, I know. And no then, wonder and, none of us eat fish. And then it's, exactly, and then it's like, because literally you're told as you're eating it, like, don't, don't choke on it. And I'm going yeah. like, am I going to choke? And it's like, no, I'm just telling you, you might. And I'm going, I think I'll have a burger because there's no bones in it. And no, it, 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 did take, it did take a long time to get yeah. over that and to re-embrace re fish. But we didn't have um, like shellfish, all right? Like yeah. I still don't, don't know if my parents um, eat um, any shellfish. I know my aunt who's based in Dublin has never eaten uh, oysters or mussels or wow. clams. And um, and yeah, it's it's, we've, it's a weird divorce, but I, I got into, into food um, I suppose by a little bit by chance, um, because um, in first year where there was only woodwork at home economics, and I had asthma, so I, I couldn't, couldn't do even if I wanted to do woodwork. There was I got I came in with a note that said my son is not doing woodwork, so I like I didn't even get a choice. <laughs> it was thrust upon you. Yeah, and um, I remember all this sewing crack and all that, um, but I, I just I suppose liked the cooking element, and then I I started to cook a bit with my uh, with my mum and. Um, for whatever for whatever reason, when I was 15, I took a job in the in the in the university, in the college, um, in the kitchens, yeah. and that was my first full-on like um, uh, I suppose um, encounter with food. But it was still very, I mean, it was like early 90s, and I still remember like making cauliflower cheese, like like for 800 people oh, like yeah. cauliflower with cheese sauce like and uh, and soups with huge big large vats of soup but it was still um it was still a an, a, an education but at the same time i remember telling my, my friends that i was cooking and they were like like what are you why are you cooking and that's weird like you cook <laughs> and they're like right do you want to do that and yeah it's, a, it's it was a strange i think that definitely we had a strange relationship with food and and if we didn't like if you weren't i suppose um in the business then it was we, we had this kind of remove that we don't have now i mean now everyone likes food and they're embracing food and different styles of food and we love we're into the history of food but back then it was just um yeah it was weird it was almost like we didn't want to talk about it yeah. it's just fuel it, that's what i mean and for my father it was fuel and now like i had the i had two different grannies uh one who was in in Bray, who was absolutely diehard working class, like Charlie Hawhey is a god. Um, that kind of Fianna Fáil, uh burnt sausages and beans that yeah. would taste of aluminium because they were cooked in the pot so much. I had one. And then you'd too. eat and you'd go, oh my god, Grannies, there's, I mean, there's something sausage. wrong with my teeth. Like, yeah. I was like, there's something. And the pot, she'd be like, she'd have a fag and a bandana. Yes. She's like, you're grand. Just to eat it like. And then I had another granny who I thought, like, I always joking, she must have wanted to be Protestant because the house was so <laughs> immaculate and the, the, the table got set after breakfast and then the oh, table sorry. got set after lunch for the next meal and then you weren't allowed to allowed in the room. And I was like, what's the story? You're not allowed well, in the room. Well, I have to tell you a quick story on that because um, my mother was Protestant. She became a Catholic to, to marry my father. And on a Sunday morning, if the roast wasn't in the oven, by seven or eight o'clock for a lunch at twelve or one o'clock. Yeah, there was there was, and, and my mum is here. I have to tell this story quickly now in case she, she arrives down <laughs> to, to sit down. Um, and Dad just say like the whole day was a disaster if, yeah. if this wasn't in the oven. And of course it came out then. It was like a brick, and she couldn't understand. And I never liked roast beef until I got nice roast beef that wasn't cooked by my mother somewhere and discovered, well, actually, roast beef is delicious. Do you think that was down to her Protestant ways? Absolutely. <laughs> not, to, not, to not enjoy it. But I do remember, my, my, she always made brown bread. And actually, yeah. that's, 
I started making brown bread with her, and then actually when, well, I lived, I lived with them. Uh, probably when I was 17 or eight, there was just too many kids in our house there was six of them so the minute I had to get out of there I just went to live with my granny for a while and um, uh, I remember making brown bread and then I uh, she made it like maybe two or three times a week and just brown soda bread so that was it was, it was weird there were some traditions that were very important yeah. and then um, and there were others that were I suppose less uh, less important but there, it, there was still uh, some sort of weird culture of food but it was just a lot of it was unsaid, you know. It was and the science influence from your dad didn't like make you want to go into food science or anything. And no, your... not really. Like, I'm more of the kind of creative arts. I yeah. mean, the poor man, the six of us, and all of us are shit at maths, and uh, <laughs> and he can multiply and do long division in his head just like that. And I like going, what? What's that numbers going? Um, but um, no, but it does influence my cooking now. Yeah, and it does that kind of very. Um, methodological investigations and, and kind of cut what temperature do you cook something at and why is why is something like rare at 50 degrees and why is it well done at 70 and like what happens when something goes in the oven I think all that side comes from the scientific yeah. side and that kind of being uh, very inquisitive when someone yeah. says well why is x called what why is it called this or yeah. like you're going I don't know why and you so I think that aspect of it certainly um, um, certainly influenced it like he's still the, I mean, my, the, the funniest, I suppose, the most, I suppose, important memory for, for me for food is um, um, is one I've told a, a, a lot of times, and it's we were um, on holidays in Tipperary in the eighties. I don't know what what day, what day, what year it was. And the eighties all seemed to take place in the same year. Um, but that's what's like living in Tipperary was like. Yeah, you didn't I, know what year it was. Yeah, so we, we were <laughs> on holidays in Tipperary in Cashel, and we we I went. I'm from Tipperary. So we went to. Uh, we went to a restaurant called Shea's Hands, which is still there yes. in Cashel. And for whatever reason, uh, the the gods of food must have been looking down at the table. And all of my brothers and sisters were having burgers and chips. And for whatever reason, I said, I'll have the spaghetti bolognese. And my mother was like, you're not going to like that. It's foreign. You're not eating that. Because <laughs> uh, and, 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 uh, my, my grandparents never had pasta. Or I don't even think oh, they ever had rice. Yeah. yeah. And they were like, she was like, you're not going to like that. And I was like, no, no, I think I'll try it. The and first for, time I, we had pasta, my dad served potatoes with it. Yes. Like as in, and he's still to this day, when he has pasta, he has a bowl of potatoes with it. Because he doesn't, and I tried to explain that it is the carrot, but he's like, no, you can't not have. So when he has lasagna, he has potatoes. When he has spaghetti bolognese, he has potatoes. Uh, I think he we're just, the, I think we're the the lasagna and chips. Oh, the lasagna and chips, lasagna and chips. Yeah, it's yeah. the Irish way. And uh, and that's I think that's even making a comeback now. That's almost like cool. Yeah. It's like gone. It's retro, and you're going, yeah. wow, that's really cool. It's <laughs> funky coleslaw. But so I had this spaghetti bolognese, and I, I really I, I I still remember as kind of like wow, like food can be different. Food food comes from somewhere else. Um, yeah. And was that the moment like a kind of a it's a little epiphany along yeah. the way I think like doing home economics was important I think that moment of saying oh wow like this is this is really interesting and because when I was 15 the second place I worked in was an Italian restaurant okay. and I think that was the start of the 90s Italian 90 the yeah. World Cup I mean Ireland kind of opened up a little bit and the 90s really the start of our restaurant culture yes. I mean like there was obviously restaurants before but, that but the real boom but the, the like boom, the, yeah. yeah And but I even I remember uh, I remember playing um um, what is it on Lawrence Avenue I remember someone saying yeah, my brother's going your father's making lasagna we have to go home <laughs> and I remember that saying daddy's cooking lasagna we have to go home um, and it was just this major event was happening and of course it all fucking spilled everywhere and everything but it was still he still makes lasagna the few dishes that he makes he still makes lasagna and it's just I, I think it was a, a kind of um, a collision you know yeah. of cultures because 
first time in the World Cup, a little bit more uh, money, you know, uh, travel opening up as well. And, and so I do think that was for me a defining moment yeah. in relation to as well, how I feel about food. Do you think that when you, you hit on something there about nostalgia, this talk is about food nostalgia and memories, but there is a trend now of retro food and we're seeing dishes in restaurants from kind of the 80s. I've seen Volivants coming back. Volivants. They never left West Limerick. But yeah, in terms of like, it. oh, they never left Tipperary. Our, our, our family dinners, yeah, I have to say, and love them. Um, but the cyclical nature, I suppose, that comes with like fashion and things yeah. like that obviously is with food but I what do you think it is about looking back with food or retro food like why do you think it's coming around again? I think there's a sense of um, of comfort you know and I definitely like and, and it's weird like I mean nostalgia is a like it's not like I wouldn't say it's a disease but it's a, it's it's a it's your brain convincing you that something was better than it was yeah I mean that's what nostalgia I suppose yeah it is. And, and when you so I, so you literally you go, God, the 80s were great, weren't they? But your brain is going, no, 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 remember that day in 1984 when the sun shining? And you go, that was amazing. And and I, that, I think that's what your brain, as you get older, your brain does this. And yeah. I think that... Or trying uh, to recreate a dish you had uh, when you were younger and it's never the same or never as good. And, and I think and we're seeing like, that yeah. because, I think, as you said, we had a boom in, say, restaurant culture in the 90s and the noughties. And so we're still, I think we're experiencing like the first wave of, say, Irish food nostalgia for a time in the 80s when like volivants or something where you can go wow yeah that was because i think that you're you're you, you kind of edit in your brain and you cut out all of the the bad stuff that was happening and yeah. you just remember the mushroom volivant you had in granny's and you're going that was the best thing ever yeah you know it wouldn't matter how dry it was or and you're going that was fantastic and then you try and recreate it and if you recreate it the way you did it's like you're going that wasn't great at all and then but if you make it if you i suppose make it a in a, in a more contemporary way, you can go. Wow, this is really, yeah. this is really not. But like pies are another thing. Like pies are yeah. so much into fashion now. Right? Back in fashion, and there's like pie shops and all of that, where pies were just seen as something heavy and too like carby. And and, and I think that a lot of that stuff is uh, is going to come back. And I think you'll see that um, like. Uh, this decade and the next decade, I think we, we'll go through that that kind of cycle of yeah. uh, of nineties uh, nostalgia and that. Uh, and I think it's just a kind of uh, a process. Yeah, and I think you can liken it to fashion as well. Yeah. Things that you know, I used to put stuff on my teens, and my mother used to say, "Well, that was in fashion whenever I was yeah. your age." It's nearly coming round. Oh again. yeah, and oh, I've definitely seen people going around wearing stuff I wore in the nineties. Yeah, for sure. There was two people sitting in front of me yesterday in. I was in um, a big fan, or the, the bow oh, place, yeah, yeah. and literally the, the the worst mullets I've ever seen in my life. Uh, the two of them, boy and a girl, and then Adidas tops, like multicolored Adidas tops <laughs> that literally I would have got beaten up for wearing. Yeah, and they were like this, like is the cool. shell tracksuit oh, type. Oh, oh, oh shell, oh, massive shell, and I was like, this is. Yeah. I, this is fashion now. Yeah. And, and then my daughter just says, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I'm, Sharon, uh, is there a dish for you that like you would look for, that you always think of as the best dish of your childhood or something that you would love to have exactly how it was like from when you were younger? Well, I uh, we had school dinners whenever I went to school, which I absolutely detest. The, the main course, like the, the, um, the potato, the mashed potato done with that mashed potato ball. Anytime I see that, shape of potato coming out it could be the nicest mashed with potato ever. yeah I can't be the ice cream scoop I think that's oh. coming back that's oh, like fashion again now yeah 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 the mashed potato one that you squeezed it yeah. wasn't the ice cream one but it was like a big a bigger ball and then you squeeze the back handles and it plopped out I think I, they ended up getting used interchangeably no one knew the difference between the mashed potato or the ice cream scoop it was all the same 
But I, what I did love at school now was I loved the custard and the semolina and all of that and um, like opening the tin of custard at home it's just it's just not the same. Yeah, rice puddings are definitely making a comeback. Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. And I, my husband's Brazilian and they have a lot of rice pudding yeah. desserts so he's delighted about it but he's like oh it's different oh, whatever and they make it like this so we've had many a discussion about rice pudding now because yeah, we've seen and them where, around. And it's where I, I think again it's that, it's that immigrant influence yeah. where you have like I think the reason why I would have said also is because of more Spanish people here and they yeah. have a big uh, rice pudding tradition because we have put it on in, in Cava and people would have it and go, do you know I haven't eaten that since I was a child? Yeah. Now, of course, we might have cinnamon and orange and they might have had different flavours, but yeah. it's it's definitely, I mean, food is is always, and I, I, I discovered this right in the book as well. I mean, we're an island and we think in our heads that the 20th century we were just we were just uh, one people yeah and we there was somehow no immigration because everyone was just leaving but really i mean people have been coming and going for centuries yeah and so there's so much um uh, influence each time people come and they go and like if, if, if you were to write the the irish food cookbook in a hundred years time yeah you'd have to be taken oh in, my gosh, in japanese yeah. influence brazilian influences look at the food vendors here today i don't know if anyone's noticed so far there's so many asian vendors yes. here and it's it's what we're what we want right now it's what everyone's asked for and what's all the restaurant openings and street food is a lot of it is from india from asia for or china um all that kind of east far east asia um, JP, you talked about your cookbook there, the Irish uh, food cookbook. Um, if anyone hasn't got it, you should still pick up a copy. It's amazing. So thorough, like so, like looking back, you know, at, at recipes I've never heard of, ingredients I've never heard of. Um, you know, I remember you telling me stories about was it wanting to put puffin, a recipe oh, for yeah, puffin, puffin and yeah. stuff? Yeah, in I wasn't allowed to put a puffin recipe in the book or a seal recipe. Uh, and actually, I was talking to people from Newfoundland. Yeah. Um, yes, two days ago outside the restaurant, and they we were talking about seal, and they still eat seal over there. And we were saying, I bet you that's Irish immigrant, Im- uh, Irish people who left during the famine and went stayed in Newfoundland, and then took that seal eating tradition mixed up with the Inuit tradition as well. But I mean, we ate seal up until the seventies on the islands, and now we're like we think we, we feel we're oh, above yeah. it. We're like, oh my god, I couldn't eat a seal. But the, the worst thing I think about it is that we still call them. Like this, they have to cull deer and they have to cull seals. Yeah. So now we cull them and we just leave them there. Yeah. And it's a when, when I and the, badger as well. And the a badger, oh, like so much squirrel and badgers. I mean, yeah. they must have they must have been having badger parties in Manute Castle because <laughs> when they when you look at archaeological remains, like loads of seal. And uh, I suppose we, on the one side, and that's what that kind of nostalgia does to you. I mean, I love looking back ten thousand years ago when the first people came to Ireland, and Mount Sandal is the oldest recorded. Uh, place we have of people where, where in, is that, sorry? in um, Derry. Okay. Uh, which is terrible because when I went up to Mount Sandal, there's nothing there. There's a little hut, and I was like, we should have a museum. Yeah. Of, of like, oh, this is the fir-. and the same with the Cady Fields, which is in Mayo, which is the oldest farm, the oldest recorded um, farm in Europe. That the remains of it. And okay, there's a visitor center there now. But I was saying to Paul O'Connell, who was up there, I was like, we should have a restaurant there. Yeah. And to celebrate that, and I, said, I still think we're. We're trying, but definitely because they, the publishers were based in New York, they didn't want a puffin. Because, but the problem is puffins are too cute. They're cute. Um, they are and cute. Like it's when you walk down the road, if you see a puffin, you're like, oh my god, he's a lovely, amazing bird. And then you look at a pigeon and you go, look at that dirty looking thing. And oh, if you just stick a puffin beak on a pigeon, you got a puffin. 
Um, they're just, they're a very similar animal. One is like it's like a pigeon of the sea. Yeah. But evolution We've, evolution saved them with that cute beak. We've had this this discussion. I brought it up to you about swans. Every time I walk past the Harold's Cross Bridge, I'm like, I'd love to just and try swans. and nap one of those and, and, and see you know, what it tastes like. But and, apparently, you're not allowed to. And it's still the Queen's property. And sometimes it's the practicality. When I was talking to actually vicious. to two Dutch people, <laughs> why we eat why we don't eat swan anymore and why we eat chicken and unfortunately it's evolution i mean the chicken got the short straw because the chickens grow much faster yeah and the reason why we don't eat swans is for a number of reasons one they're is they're vicious well yeah but they are but one of the, they're they're oh no they're very vicious but one of the reasons is because they're too big okay and we can't fit them in the oven fair and that's one of the main reasons they're too big and uh, and the turkey unfortunately is a bit smaller you can fit in depends yeah and but the set and the second one though is actually the, the most important one is that it take it they have a really long um uh, reproduction cycle and oh, so okay. like a chicken takes 28 days to grow whereas a swan takes a year and so unfortunately a turkey takes about six months so they were like looking swan turkey chicken they were like we'll take these two and we're like he's too cute leave him alone and of yeah. course and in england the queen it was only the queen ate them but they do still eat swan around the world yeah and we don't and we might say that's terrible and but it is that's that's the interesting thing about food traditions um i mean you, i couldn't imagine eating dogs or cats but yet you have a whole uh, massive uh, uh, tradition in Asia of eating yeah. them. And they might look at the same way as us going, why yeah. are you eating those birds? I was doing a talk for the National Dairy Council yesterday, or, yeah, yesterday, and we were talking about sustainable diets. And obviously when you look at what we're going to be eating in the future, insects come into that because they're such a high source of protein. And then everyone's like, you know, we're all like, oh, insects, grasshoppers. But obviously like in other parts of the world, again, in Asia, like there's so much of insects eaten and part of the diet. So I think it is of the different traditions that are in different cultures but there's so much overlap now isn't there between traditions and cultures like as you said when you write the book on Irish food in you know 20 50 years time it's going to be really good I think we should get the oyster a mention because obviously the oyster was the poor man's food back in the day but now it's it's deemed to be one of the the most fancy foods you can get in Ireland but um, definitely like it's it's such a like a blurred line, and like I and I, I suppose I felt what while I was writing the cookbook, I felt like I wouldn't say I felt like um, I was like deceiving myself, but like like national cuisine is 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 a myth mythological to a certain degree. Like all there is no national cuisines anywhere. I mean, we kind of invent them. So we invent Spanish cuisine, and we just decide what what is Spanish, and what's not Spanish. And so when I was writing the book on on Irish food. Um, I remember getting recipes and from books and from the archives and then they said oh yeah we'd love to put you some of your family recipes in okay so I said of course so then my, my auntie's carrot cake oh yeah amazing that's an Irish recipe and um, um, the my, lasagna my father's lasagna oh no that's Italian and I was like but it's 1990s that's like 30 years ago no that's Italian and I was like well what makes it Italian I was like because they well, and I said well sure I mean at what point did we decide lasagna was Italian I mean, and I would say a lot of our Italian influence comes from America, and so it, it is a weird. Uh, yeah, and, and carrot cake, even though you're saying Irish, with but it's cinnamon, not Irish. No, with cinnamon and spices. Middle and Eastern been, more is it? So yeah, it's all yeah. different traditions. I mean, one of my favorite recipes that I didn't, I didn't actually make it into make it into the book that was from um, uh, a place in Westport, and it was like lobster curry from 1812. Ooh. And like, if you said to someone uh, we were, were we eating curry in the 19th century, you would have went, no, we're not. We were out of famine. But in the Matin papers, there was some lad having lobster curry, and he was having a good time. And um, so, <laughs> and that, and that was in Ireland. I mean, and we have to realise that the food that 
we we may want. I mean, we, we, what we do in an ear and only look at Irish produce. But that is also um, uh, illusory to a certain degree yeah. because we're deciding what we do and what we take. And do you find that harder and harder to stay true to because of the influences now in like what is Irish food? Yes. You know, how do you decide what is Irish now? No, it's re- it's really difficult, and of course we look at like wild food and foraged foods and uh, uh, and seaweed but they're like they're not substantial elements to yeah. to con- they're like the seasoning you know and so if you're looking for um, uh, only Irish food I mean then you, you, you have to pretty much um, stop making bread because we only have a wholemeal brown flour we don't have white flour in Ireland we don't produce it we don't produce sugar in Ireland uh, we produce very little oil do you so, have the potato on the menu oh the, the actually the, the, we, the we, big, had, uh, we had we had we had spuds on the menu uh, no actually at the very very start we didn't have spuds on the menu because we're, like, we're not putting spuds on the menu and then of course it was complaints about the main course why isn't there spuds on the main course so then we put on the, the, the main course uh, spuds on the main course on the side and then I felt like people the people were using them as a security blanket they just had their potatoes just in case so they might have one and then they were like and then in the end we just went cold turkey I just decided I think it was New Year's Eve we said we're not doing potatoes anymore and I remember I forgot to tell my brother who was on the floor Alex in front of anyone who works in front of the house will know this he just came in opened the thing to get the potatoes and went with the potatoes and I was like oh we're not doing them anymore and he goes I just told a customer I can give them potatoes and, and, and people would say you ripped us off yeah, you could give them anything and they go no potatoes someone once said to me do you know what I like you but Nevin serves more spuds uh, oh. and I thought that was the most horrendous I was like shocked I was like okay I'll try better they're like you're good but there was no spuds you'll have to break out that scooper oh again. listen I, uh, Bring them back to the it's really interesting I give um, food walking tours in Dublin with fab food trails and I always find Americans perception of Irish food is is always a really interesting one obviously you know I'm not sure if there's any Americans here but obviously a lot of stews 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 and um, potatoes you know they always say potatoes and then I started to hold debate with them about potatoes I tell them the story and the heritage and the famine and everything and then by the end of it they're like okay get it it's not all about potatoes yeah. and then they go out for dinner and they're like we just had nothing but potatoes because <laughs> they're served a big helping of potatoes but what is it about the potato that the Irish people just adore is it our is it because so many people suffered in the famine and are linked to it or is it just we just adore potatoes but I think it's a meal in itself you know a big uh, like a big pile of mashed potatoes a nice chunk of butter on it salt and pepper like it's a meal yeah. you don't need anything else yeah. with no, it I, I, and I think I mean, I think um, I think most cultures have uh, potatoes as a key element. If you look into British food or French food or uh, particularly European countries, yeah. and I think whatever it is about Ireland and the uh, the famine, and then also uh, pre-famine being dependent on the yeah. potato. I mean, the pe- when people were eating, what was it like? Like it was it seven, Fif- seven, fifteen kilo or? Uh, yeah. Well, fifty percent of the population were reliant on it as a staple ingredient yes. before the famine, and the main variety was the lumper, which is the one that is really prone to the disease, to the blight. That's part of my spiel now that I give on the tour, just to get. But I, I, I forget now exactly. <laughs> but people were eating about seven kilos a day. It was mad. That was the only thing and that the, they ate. And the men they had it for breakfast, yeah. dinner, and lunch. There was nothing else in their diet. The men would take the core, the uncooked cores, out to the fields yes. and eat them as they were laboring on the fields and stuff like that because yeah. they were like, like the carbohydrates were all in the center yeah well, so they didn't cook the if you left the, the inner part raw yeah. it would give you an energy boost in the middle of the yeah. in the middle of the field but that and i, I think there is a, a the, the because 
we can we can grow so many of them or we did yeah and they were and they were inexpensive i think that that's there's that yeah. um so the last thing to ask you guys before we finish up is what's your favorite irish ingredient or do you have a favorite or what is the the staple you can't like you probably have on your tables most often or well i think it has to be sea salt sea salt and Achill island sea salt Love is it. definitely yeah. the the one of choice in our house yeah. at the moment because we're not like you don't think about again as an island nation you don't think about us as producers of sea salt or it's not one of our top things if you were to list out pro produce I'd say not everyone would think of sea salt but we do create amazing sea salt we just don't can't do it naturally with the sun it doesn't evaporate so you have to bring it inside and put it in ovens but beautiful. and there is a producer down in the Dingle Peninsula that is producing it through evaporation oh, yeah. yeah there's two um, there's two fairly new Oriel, salt producers down. no they're um, they're the going that yeah. Okay, yeah. direction yeah um, there's the west of Dingle sea salt and I think Dingle sea salt. Okay. So they're both relatively new yeah. and, and one of them is producing it through evaporation. Amazing. Yeah. And for you JP the ingredients? Yeah, like I mean the sea salt would be very would be up there. Um like I mean if I was to take like a, a favourite Irish ingredient that I that I love it would be sea yeah. it would be seaweed. Seaweed, yeah. Like definitely. But if I if I was to take like the two most essential things that we take for granted in our kitchen, it would be oil and salt. And because we, we have a lovely cold pressed um rapeseed oil. Rapeseed Oil, yeah. And salt, and like you, you forget how important salt and oil is in when you when you cook. I mean, my aunt, I mean, she's not here anyway, and I won't name her, but she has no salt in her in her house. So my dad does well. I was going to say, but I'm, I don't mind whispering. He's in. He's I know. In I, I mean, I hope he's not telling me. But my dad told me that you know he's in his eighties and he was like looking after his health, and he was like, oh no, we've cut salt out. We don't use it in cooking or anything. There, I'm about to sit down to dinner, and I was like, so you don't have any for guests or anything? You know, I was just like, but what about people come it, and they want? You know, and it was just devoid. It's of, like the way alcohol was in the eighties. It's like we have a cabinet that's locked all the time because we don't drink. It's for guests. And it's like, where's the salt? And they're like, I don't have any. And I was like, like do you know salt keeps you alive? And they're like, no, you don't need it. And th that's the thing we forget. Like, I mean, fat and salt and sugar keep us alive. And it's just because we have so much of it yeah. that we think they're bad for us. But like, I couldn't, like, if I had to go to a desert island, it'd be salt and oil. Because I mean, if I met a seal, at least I could cook them. Desert but, island, you won't be able to make your own sea salt from the island. Oh, that's true so, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. And, but uh, definitely, and it'd be more local. I, do, if any, uh, you ca <laughs> I cannot cook without salt and oil. No. Like, you just can't. You can get the, have the best oyster, the best anything in the world. And of course, I'll put a bit of seaweed on top for it to garnish. But literally, if you don't have oil and salt, you're done for. Very quickly about seaweed. Why don't we eat more of it? Or how? why would you encourage people to eat more of it? Like, I mean, on the on one side of it, I don't even think about it at all. It's highly nutritious. It's great for you. It's like, they're, they're not even the things I, I, I think about when I'm using it. I think it's a, it has amazing flavor, both fresh and dried. Um, it is, um, we have amazing history of, um, of seaweed in Ireland and we never embraced it the way the Japanese embraced it and that's partially to do with the potato coming and the potato being so easy to grow um, and then also, also a lot of the seaweed was used for fertilizer and, um, yeah. and also to make, um, uh, to make glass and iodine but like yeah definitely I mean it's seaweed is um, is not it's not that dried is better than fresh they have they have two different um, purposes but like yeah definitely try and investigate it and even putting diliskin soup or having brown fresh bread. yeah brown, brown yeah. bread is amazing or having some fresh seaweed um, with a piece of fish or oysters or anything like that it's it's not a very difficult thing to use yeah um, uh, my parents would have would have sold dulse 
in yes. the in the shop over the summer season every year. And, and people would have eaten like the, it, I remember coming across someone in Waterford chewing yeah. chewing du- and having dull sandwiches. Yeah. Now I never actually tried it. Which is, it's like a crisp sandwich, but it's like two slices of sliced pan butter and then dried dulsk in the middle of it. Now I'd say it's fairly rough. Oh, but, I think I'd try um, that but uh, you can you can try it earlier on. Yeah, earlier so on. we would have eaten dulls like we would have eaten a bag of crisps. I've chewed it like up. that. Yeah, I've done yeah, that. That's, that's real nice. Yeah. yeah, and I see actually some people selling dulls crisps now and that. But it may, it does make great uh, great um, crisps and crackers and yeah. you, um, and and uh, like I, I'm I'm very always very inspired by the Japanese in that regard. Yeah. Because anything they can do. Uh, with seaweed we can do as well and we're actually supplying them with seaweed now as well because after um, Fukushima so we have so much of it most of our seaweed is, is exported and even um, we get seaweed from uh, Noel in Connemara seaweed and he had a guy from Brooklyn um, who who looked like a rapper but he's actually makes um, carrying capsules and I was like who's this guy picking seaweed with Noel and so he was he was really interesting so a lot of it gets exported and yeah. so it's really interesting well, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but um, before we go, Food on the Edge is happening. Uh, Tell o- us quickly. In October, uh, we have a symposium called Food on the Edge, and it is on in Airfield Estate um, on the third week of October, Monday and Tuesday. And you can look online. We have about 50 speakers who come, and people from all over the world, and people from Ireland as well, and we talk about food and sustainability and lots of uh, lots of other things. And it's on in Airfield, which is an amazing uh, site in of itself. If I've uh, never been to Airfield, it's in Dundrum and it's an urban farm and there's so few urban farms left in the world yeah. uh, that it's amazing uh, to have it in Dublin. It is absolutely incredible out there. Thank you so much, Sharon. Thank you so Thank much, Jade. Can I just give yeah, a quick shout out to the two radio documentaries that I oh, yes. have done. One of them is about Devlin's Yellow Mom, A Taste of Childhood, and the other one then is about 10 years of the Irish Food Awards so what oh, a gloss yeah. so that's on my website SharonNoonan.com SharonNoonan.com make sure and check that out give a please round of applause to our two guests Thank you. you're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM welcome back to the best possible taste I'm Sharon Noonan and don't forget that tonight's programme is the final one before we take a break for the summer. And just before the break we heard a recording from the Food for Thought Theatre at this year's Taste of Dublin where host Dee Laffin was talking to Michelin star chef JP McMahon and my good self about food nostalgia. If you're just tuning in now and you missed that, you might want to catch the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. Now, also at Taste of Dublin this year was a number of fantastic award-winning food and drink producers, including Anna and Orla Snook O'Carroll, who founded Valencia Island Vermouth last year. And I'm delighted to have the wife and wife team on the line now to tell us more. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Anna and Dorla, I'm delighted to welcome you to the best possible taste. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I went past your stall at Taste of Dublin there a few weeks ago and you were extremely busy, so I just kind of got a photograph in the distance. And you were there with your fantastic Valencia Vermouth, which a lot of people may not have heard of. So tell us, Vermouth from Valencia, where did it all begin? 
So it all started, I suppose, um, we moved to Valencia four years ago. And within that time, I think we had the space, the headspace and the and the like the physical space, everything to start developing our own vermouth. Um, and we were looking around at the absolutely beautiful countryside that was around us and the landscape and the sea and the, the coastal kind of like plants and herbs and stuff that are here. And we started playing around with different tinctures and different recipes, I suppose. Um, my dad is a beekeeper, so he would have a lot of plant knowledge. And um, and then I had all of this plant knowledge in my head that I completely forgotten about. Um, that was in there from when I was eight years old or 10 years old going out doing the bees with dad. So um, so this kind of, he'd be texting us then kind of saying like, oh, will you put, put apple blossom in? Oh, how about blackberry blossom, meadowsweet and things like that. And um, so we played around with a lot of recipes for a couple of years. And, uh, and then we went to shelf then last year in July, 2021. And let me ask you, because a lot of people may be wondering, one, what is vermouth? And two, why did you go for it over maybe something like gin, which has had such an explosion of products in Ireland? Um, so vermouth um, is a fortified wine. So it's a, it's a wine-based drink um, that's had uh, flavour added to it. Um, and alcohol added to it. So the way that we make vermouth, um, we have a base wine of a Vadeco grape um, from the hills of Madrid. It's a beautiful wine. And we add 20 different botanicals to it, um, each of which are sort of steeped in their own jars. So, for instance, we um, we forage gorse from the island, which is that beautiful yellow flower that is in abundance over all of Ireland. Um, we pick that, which can be a little bit painful, I think, if anyone knows the thorns that are on there. Um, you dry those out and then you put that in the neutral alcohol. Um, and what the neutral alcohol does is it um, withdraws the flavour from uh, whatever the plant matter or the botanical is. Um, and then once you leave that in there for X amount of periods, say uh, two weeks, um, it depends what it is, you withdraw the matter out, so you take the gorse flower out, and then that flavour is captured in that, in that jar. Um, so we've done that with 20 different botanicals, some being uh, sage, rosemary um we've got a beautiful oris root in there um there's yarrow obviously and wormwood is a key ingredient to vermouth because it has to have wormwood in it in order for it to be a vermouth um now the other unique um part of our vermouth that we make um is that we make a deep dark caramel so we make the caramel in nice big bats um, and we literally take it to the point of even when it's like nearly get, nearly burnt. So it's a beautiful dark colour. And then we pour that out into sheets. And so it goes into that um, brittle, um, hard, hard um, caramel. And then we break it back up once it's cooled. And then we put that back in the wine and dissolve it back in. Um, and that's the sweetness in there. So when you drink our vermouth, um, the first sip that you get, you really get a sort of bang of that caramel. Um, and then what happens after that, the botanicals roll in after. So some of them have got some bitter notes in there. Some of them are sweet. But what happens is you get the caramel and then the botanicals roll in after. Yeah, it's quite a unique experience. And just the way you're talking about it there, Anna, you can tell the passion and the love and everything that goes into the distilling process. But why vermouth? Why not gin or vodka or beer? Why did you decide that vermouth was going to be the product that, which is because it's very unique to Ireland. You are Ireland's first vermouth, I believe. 
Yeah, we are. Um, it's totally my fault out of the two of us. Um, so uh, we lived in Bristol uh, and, I, and I've, I've got a catering background. And so um, I went to a vermouth tasting and at the vermouth tasting, we got presented with these beautiful uh, contemporary sort of sipping vermouths. Uh, and I just absolutely couldn't believe what I was tasting. Um, and I sort of came back home to Orla and I was just like waving these bottles in her face going, you, you're just not going to believe this. So... From that point on, it became a mission anyway to basically find as many vermouths as possible and taste as many and share with knowledge of people about vermouth. And then when we moved here to Valencia Island, um, that's when we had the space to start developing our own, which is when we had sort of mad concoctions around the, the kitchen, which were little tincture jars of different flavours from the island and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so that's why vermouth because it is just absolutely gorgeous, and um, and what we've what we're doing now is just trying to just inform as many people as possible about this beautiful drink, um, that is vermouth, um, and just try and get it out there. So tell me then about the how how it's served. How is it best served? Is it like in a cocktail? Is it with a tonic water? Can you use it for cooking? If I have a bottle of it here in my house, tell me how I can use it. Um, the handy thing about it is that it's, it is super versatile. So my favorite way to drink it is a vermouth and tonic. So Valencia tonic. So Valencia Island vermouth, a good tonic. You can play around with some of the nice kind of flavored ones, ice and a slice of orange. So it's as simple as that. I think it's delicious. Anna's favorite way is probably just chilled from the fridge with a with cube or two of ice. Um, but it's also in like umpteen cocktails. So, you know, it's in Manhattan. It's in Martin it's in Negronis so you can like you can kind of you can kind of go two ways with it you can have a lovely drink in the afternoon like instead of a G&T you can have a V&T a vermouth and tonic or you know you can have a Valencia spritz as well in the in the afternoon as well on a nice Saturday when the sun is shining so like Valencia Isle of Vermouth Prosecco or Cava ice and a slice of orange it's just absolutely delicious served in a tall glass so there's kind of lots of ways to drink it and whenever you launched, what was the response from the market? We launched in 2021 in July. So we're a COVID, COVID baby. <laughs> we're, we're a pandemonial. <laughs> and um, and um, it was the, the, uh, everyone absolutely loved it. They were really, they were really excited by it. They still are because I think once you taste it, you kind of really, like it doesn't, it doesn't taste what you think it's going to taste like. And, you know, you're kind of, you're blown away by this like bittersweet magic that's kind of being poured for you. Um, and then because it's so accessible, you know, you can drink it, as I said, with a tonic or a soda water or have it in loads of different cocktails. So there's kind of lots of different options for it. So I think people really took it up for that reason. And of course that is from Valencia. And tastings are so important whenever a new product is launched onto the market. So when you were at Taste of Dublin, that was a great opportunity to introduce people to it. What was the response like there? Um, it was absolutely incredible, actually. Um, so a lot of people who came up were, were a little apprehensive about what it was, uh, thinking it was going to be like a whiskey or something like that. It's got quite a golden colour to it. And you just had to be like, just trust me, it's wine based. It's, you know, it's not a whiskey. And so um, it was really, uh, I loved watching people's faces um, as they sort of, um, as they took their first sip 
because they were just so pleasantly surprised. It was just followed with this instant smile, um, which was really nice. Um, so, yeah, we really got to go out there and talk to the people, um, which was just so valuable, wasn't it? It was brilliant. And another great way to spread awareness and raise awareness is by entering awards. And I believe last year you won a Blossomeran Irish Food Award. Yeah, last year. So we had just launched and we, we came third. We got bronze in Blossomeran and we were we were over the moon. Um, we also were named top 10 vermouths in the world by Falstaff magazine. So that was phenomenal as well. Um, this year we've entered into Blossna Heron again and we've also entered into great taste yeah yeah uh, so yeah we're 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 hoping that we'll do well again this year ah, I shouldn't have said that <laughs> <laughs> and just to finish up I'm always fascinated by packaging of new products and your bottle has a very interesting story Yes, so we are super proud of our um, of our label and our bottle. So myself and Anna met in art school in Bristol, and um, we're and we got married here in Valencia. So the lighthouse on the on the bottle is where we got married, the uh, lighthouse of Valencia. And then there's two mermaids um, with their tails intertwining down at the bottom. And there's a secret little A down there for Anna. And there's a secret little O down here for, for me, for Orla. And then um, the 20 different botanicals are all around the side, are all drawn around the side on the bottle. Now, it's a secret recipe, but if you knew your plants, <laughs> you might be able to work it out. Um, the tetrapod in Valencia as well is in there in a secret little uh, secret little part. So there's there's lots of little secrets on the on the bottle and on the label. Um, our the illustrator that brought it all to life was Steve Dugan, um, and then the graphic design company were Bullseye from Cork. And uh, but yes, Steve and Bullseye were just absolutely phenomenal in seeing our vision through. Well, it looks absolutely amazing, and of course, a lot of people say you eat with your eyes. So equally, when people go into a shop and see it there, hopefully they'll drink with their eyes, and that'll help to to generate sales. For anybody listening that wants to get their hands on a bottle of Valencia Island Vermouth, where should they go? Where can they get more information? So you can get it. Um, we're in the Super Values in in Munster, in Cork and Kerry. Um, we're also um, with a Celtic Whiskey Shop online and Bubble Brothers online. And then I believe your your local wine guru in West Limerick is Ron Forrestal. So I think you'll be able to get in touch with him as well and you'll be able to get it um, via him too. Brilliant. And you're very active in social media, I believe. Yes, uh, we are in, um, on Instagram, you can find us at Valencia Island Vermouth and Facebook the same. And our website is valenciaislandvermouth.ie. Fantastic. Well, listen, congratulations on creating Ireland's first vermouth. I hope it goes absolutely brilliantly for you in all those awards that you've entered this year and continued success. Thank you, Sharon. It's great to be here today to talk to you. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. 
I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break we heard the Valencia Island Vermouth story from founders Anna and Orla Snook O'Carroll and earlier on in the programme we heard a recording from the Food for Thought Theatre at this year's Taste of Dublin where host Dee Laffin was talking to Michelin star chef JP McMahon and my good self about food nostalgia. If you are just tuning in now and you've missed all of that, you might want to catch the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am and the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And that brings us to the end of the show tonight. Thanks for listening and to my guests, Anna and Orlitz Snook O'Carroll and to Taste of Dublin, Dee Laffin and JP McMahon for giving permission to record and air the food nostalgia talk from Taste of Dublin. I'll be back in September after the summer break. In the meantime, on Tuesdays at 8pm and Wednesdays at 8am, you can enjoy some best possible taste second helpings, programmes and the odd food and drink related documentary. Have a fantastic summer and until September, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit.